Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Coleman, sitting in the safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, welcome. Yes, uh, <laughs> thank you for welcoming me. Thank you very much. And well, you know what? I, I feel welcomed so much because... Um, because uh, it's exciting times where we, we were supposed to enter our phase three here in New Orleans and mm. they shot it down. The yes. state government and our city leaders shot it down. They said people haven't been, you know, uh, they haven't been, uh, you know, doing the rules. They haven't been wearing their masks. They haven't been, you know, distancing nope. themselves. And, and now what do we have? We have a, a spike. We have this right. spike now, you know. Yes. In 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 in, in uh, cases and in deaths and it, and of course it was all two weeks after Memorial Day, and now okay. you know, and now next week is Fourth of July weekend, and of course you're going to have all these idiots and yahoos going out there and 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 barbecuing and sitting in you know fifty people in a above ground twenty five by ten pool. <laughs> you know, you know, right. classy, <laughs> keeping it classy. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, keeping it classy, of course, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> thing is, I mean, I, it's amazing that you can have built in pools here in New Orleans with, with, uh, you know, us being below sea level so much. I, I, I find it amazing that anyone could have a built in pool here in this. Yeah. Town. Yeah. Well, they've, they've sucked a lot of water out of the, uh, out of the ground over the years, but I think they do have some issues with them. You know, it's, uh, you, know, you get a, those things uh, require a lot of lot of maintenance. That's for sure. Those, those right. inbound pools. Yeah. So I've been doing okay. I mean, I'm still working. Uh, I'm still distancing myself, like I've done for years. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, uh, but uh, I, I've also I've gained another twelve pounds, Renee. Jesus Christ, another, Manny. Yeah. When this whole pandemic and quarantine started, I was 140 pounds. And now I've gained six. I'm 207 pounds. <laughs> I'm 207 pounds, man. And it's, it's, it's pretty good for me because, you know, where I work, I work uh, the offices. I mean, the campus is closed and all that. So there's nobody I have to really deal with. So I can just go in my sweatpants and a, and a, and a T-shirt. I don't have to deal really? with anyone. And really? That's, I, that's okay. you I'm out of all my clothes. I used to be a 32, 34 waist, and you know now I have no idea what it is. <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah. Jesus Christ, man! So you can't let yeah. yourself go like that. What yeah. are you eating? To well, how are you? How are you? What's your diet like? That how has it changed? Because well, I mean, you weren't having a lot of physical activity before the lockdown, so I don't think it's so much your your workout regimen has changed. It must be your caloric intake that's changed. Well, I've noticed that I love butter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sticks, sticks of butter. I can eat them like popsicles now. Yeah. I, just eat, I, just, I eat sticks of butter. In fact, now with everyone delivering things to you, I have this market just delivering me butter, tubs of wow. butter and sticks of okay. butter. So I like it though. I, I can, you know, I, I, I just sit at home in a robe and my underwear all day and I just, you know, just burp a lot. And uh, okay. it's, it's fantastic. I feel like, remember the, uh, that series, The Sopranos? Sure, sure. Remember every time Tony would wake up after a bender in his house, he'd just be wearing a robe and a, and a tank top and his underwear? Right. That's basically me. Oh, Jesus, man. <laughs> That's basically it's, I feel great about it. I, re I really do. Yes, you're getting back to your right. Italian roots. 
Well, uh, yeah, on the, my dad's side, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, in fact, uh, for Father's Day, I uh, I attempted something that I've never done because okay. I've never been handy in the kitchen. But over the years, I've gotten a little handy in the kitchen. I I, I made homemade flour tortillas. Really? Yeah, I made uh, I made just like my grandma used to make them. Uh, with uh, all-purpose flour and salt and baking powder, and of course, bake uh, bacon fat. I put bacon mm. fat in there to add a little flavor to it, and uh, they turned out awful. They were just awful. Really? <laughs> the problem I had was I didn't have a rolling pin. I forgot about the rolling pin, hmm. so I used a uh, like a, a, a pint, a, a beer pint glass. To try uh -huh. to roll the tortillas in a in a in a right circle, but everything just kind of went like my penis just bent to the left. The tortillas, you know. Really? So, okay. Yeah. So that's what I did. How was your Father's Day? Uh, my Father's Day was good. We actually had the whole family in in my sister's backyard. Some social distancing, or at least uh, you know the closest we could come to that. And uh, you know, it's everyone. After all this time, though we've we've been so sequestered, everyone feels a little bit more comfortable about being around each other. And uh, you know, I don't think we're I don't think we're doing anything too dangerous. I, I will say I, I've been seeing in the newspaper where, like you were mentioning, all these gatherings like Memorial Day and coming up Fourth of July. I, th I saw in the newspaper there was uh, several uh, graduation parties, which yeah. which have wound up being uh, well. We talked about one in Florida last week or something, but uh, there was a couple. In New Orleans, that uh, one from Newman, one from some other school, where you know you had people inside and shoulder to shoulder, no masks, and you know having you know fifty percent of the people coming down with uh, with with uh, the virus. So, yeah, so you know, I, I think I think I've been avoiding any of those situations. Although you know, it's uh, I, I guess you never know until somebody gets sick. So we're uh, well. I mean. You gotta you gotta play it safe. Especially, I, I you know I'm 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 in my late fifties like you are and stuff, and I don't want to you know I'm I'm gonna die soon probably. I don't want to die this way, you know. <laughs> you, know? Wanna, you know, and you know me, I don't really like gatherings and stuff. So we've been pretty sure. good, you know. You know, and right um, So we've been all good, but I I did notice that you know all this stuff is going on and and the distancing and and. Uh, um, People shaking, touching hands, or shaking hands. You know, people kind of bump elbows now. They've been doing that for a while. And uh, I saw a poll um, about the handshake. And um, first of all, I don't even know who invented the handshake. Yeah, I, I it must go like, back quite a while. Uh, yeah, quite I don't ways, know. You know, yeah. I think it might be who invented uh, the handshake. Who decided that we have to touch each other's hands? You know, shake each other's you know, hands or whatever. Anyway, so they took this poll and. 40% of people said they're not sure if they'll ever do a handshake again. Hmm. And okay. 10% said they will never shake hands again. Okay. And the, and the other 50% are dead. So, uh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, that, that brings up another thought I had. It's like when, when this returns to some, you know, uh, kind of normalcy and people are going out, what is this going to do to the dating world? You know, is this, uh, I remember, you know, AIDS was a big, 
uh, a big you know damper on the whole dating world this might be worse i think this this might be more inhibiting because it's it's uh more easily communicated um it's harder you know it's more people have yeah, it it's, then know. again though i mean your kids and my kids, I mean, yours, your kids are in college, mine's in high school, uh, our guest kids in high school. I mean, my daughter met her first boyfriend through social networking. She had never actually seen him face to face. It was over the computer. Kind of a you know? mail order bride situation. Well, that, it's just the way it is these days, though. I mean, this yeah. is how people are. Our friend, Wadzilla, mm-hmm. met his last girlfriend through, uh, on the computer. They just, oh, okay, so is that backpages.com? Yeah, they're Craigslist. something like that. They're like, uh-huh. they, they match, their likes match, their interests li- oh, okay. match and stuff. And they, and they met over the, uh, on the Skype and they looked at each other. Right, they but felt then, each other that they were, but then, but of then course, you, have to, uh, you have to be around each other to, I mean, for to have a real relationship. I mean, you can't, you just, you don't want just a pen pal, do you? Well, so, so at that point, how reluctant. Right. But I mean, people are going to be reluctant to, uh, that's what I'm saying. It's like, uh, you know, at what point will people feel comfortable, you know, hanging out in close proximity and being intimate and all of that, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, Wadzilla, Wadzilla met her at a movie theater. They, he bought her some popcorn and sodas and they watched the movie and they went home and he killed her. Okay, well, there you go. You know, maybe it's maybe you should get to little, know somebody too close. No. Yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, no good. Yeah, that's, but uh, yeah. So, um, so other than that, you know, we we went through a big uh, down here. We're going through this huge storm, and now we have this uh, dust storm that's coming to the Gulf of Mexico from. I saw Africa. that from the Sahara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Sahara Desert. Apparently, this happens once a year, but. It's never really made it into the Gulf or something. I've never experienced this before. Hmm. Have you? Here yeah, living, it's, uh, I, I don't recall that. I, I don't recall that happening. I did see that that item in the news, and uh, you know, it's it's just an avalanche of of uh, of, of calamity here. So that I figured. Uh, I mean, maybe they thought, well, all these other things are going wrong. Let's promote this as just to to you know. Uh, just add so, to the. So apparently, the, by this weekend, we're going to have like uh, uh, like clouds of dust coming over the Gulf and into the southern part of the state and stuff. And I just remember growing up in LA that we called that smog. You know? Right, 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 right. You know, or progress. And, yeah. <laughs> well, apparently there's a dust storm, but I remember in LA we had angel dust storms. Okay. <laughs> yes, I remember those. <laughs> we had, had those here too. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so what's been going on with you? Oh, well, you know, I had an interesting thing. This guy reached out. I'd never met this guy before. He, he says, he sends me a photograph, and he says, uh, I'm the new uh, band director at Carr High School, and, and Edna Carr High School on the West Bank, and we're moving to a new building, and I was, you know, organizing all the stuff to, to, to make the move, and I was going through a cardboard box, and I came across all these photographs that were these framed photographs. And he said, is this you? And it was a picture of me in my drum major's uniform from eighth grade. So I was, must have been like, you know, 13, 12 and 13 years old. 
and uh, and it was me and uh and i said wow that's crazy man so he's like well do you want it back i said sure sure i'll come come get it back so so it was amazing how much i look like my daughter in that photograph you know, really uh, I-, I thought you were going to say he was going to ask you to help him move yeah, yeah, no, I, he's, he's, well, it's funny, you know, I, I saw the picture of the guy on social media, and he's all dressed up, and his hair slicked back, and bow tie on, I thought, oh, you know, this guy looks in his, his 30s or so, mid-30s, and I, and I went to get the picture from him, and he looked like he was about 10, <laughs> he was just wearing a t-shirt, and his hair was kind of down, you know, I was like, oh, man, this kid could be 24 here, oh, uh. So that was interesting. That was that was uh, unexpected. Unexpected. I, I I did have a a little bit of a, a couple of down days this week. You know, just oh, just, no. just just personally. And I was trying to think, well, why do you? Why am I feeling this way? I was trying to figure it out because nothing had changed. And I kind of, I think I put my finger on it. As I'm 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 having kind of withdrawal from from the I'm I'm starved for the approval of strangers. You know, without uh, without getting without getting to play gigs, I I, I don't have my normal ego stroke of of uh you know people that i don't know approving of me so how do you feel about that well once i i you know i felt better once i was able to diagnose it i thought oh okay well that's what it is so don't sweat it you know it's a nah. so i felt better that's a little bit of self-awareness a little, <laughs> you know that was, that was good that was progress uh, well okay well that's good yeah I, I thought you were gonna say you went out in the street and and just begged for people to shake their hand or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's tough. Right. Yeah, I guess so. When, when you're getting your ego stroke constantly on stage and stuff like that and off stage and backstage, you're getting other things <laughs> um, I guess uh, yeah, you miss that, you know? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, I guess I'm, goes back to my childhood you know we've discussed this before you know just seeking approval um you know when, when you when you can't get approval in your home you you look for it anywhere you can find it man <laughs> basically you're you're travis bickle right oh well okay <laughs> maybe maybe handling it a little bit differently but yeah, sure, okay let's sure, let's hope sure. let's hope different haircut different yeah. haircut well listen before we get to our guests i wanted to mm-hmm. talk about one thing that's going on in the city i don't know if you noticed this in your neighborhood but are they picking up your garbage at the, the day they're supposed to they're not no no they're Have a day or that? two off yeah, yeah it's very uh, weird yeah it's like i noticed in the past two weeks it's, we have a monday and thursday pickup and now it's been like Wednesday and Saturday night. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you know what what's what's going on? Are they that? Uh, are they are the temp workers not showing up because of health code violations, or they don't? They're worried about getting sick. Well, it's, I, not, I th- it's not on the news. It's not on the news at all. Right. I, I did hear some stuff about it, though. I think that they were using a lot of temp workers, which I was surprised. I thought, well, we had companies that were that have the contract. Don't they have regular workers? But they were well, saying they, have, they had they, they do have some full time workers. But basically, those guys you see, like when they're going down Canal Street at 80 miles an hour and the guys are hanging on the edge of the, you know, hanging on the edge of the truck. <laughs> those guys are usually temp workers making about 12 bucks an hour. Yeah, so I guess some of those temp workers were were uh, maybe having a work stoppage, saying you know we need better pay or we need um, uh, you know some hazard pay because of uh, well you know, at least the masks. They were just asking for masks and stuff like that. Right, and you so know. the response to that was uh, 
they started having more prisoners, more prison labor that they were using to <laughs> fill, fill in for these guys. And, you know, it gets into this whole, this whole, you know, the, the police and the, and the, you know, social justice and all this. Cause it's like, well, Jesus, we're really, that's, we'd rather, you know, make these prisoners do this rather than pay these guys a, a, a few dollars extra or provide them with the masks that they need. It's, it's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy going nuts, man. Yeah, it's yeah. the world we live in. So listen, we, we have an mm-hmm. exciting guest tonight. Yes. He, I could hear him breathing and, and yeah. uh, doing something on the other line. <laughs> um, so uh, I, you probably read the novel he sent you about himself. I, I did. Uh, I did. I got it at the last minute, but I, I, did, uh, I did pour over it, and it was quite fascinating. He yeah. led, a, led a fascinating life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why don't you uh, do your little intro and we'll get him on because he's an exciting guy. He's an old friend of mine. Yes, and, yes. Uh, and he's, uh, he's part, of, uh, part of the Troubled Nation with his uh, – well, just go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get, get to, to, to all the connections between our guest and, and uh, Troubled Nation. So uh, he's currently a, a cannabis entrepreneur, um, but he goes all the way back to uh, – he's, he's a high school friend of Manny Chevrolet's. Uh, he's led a fascinating life. He has a, a degree from Brown University, uh, Ivy League grad. You know, not the first on the Troubled Men podcast, but we always love that. Uh, and uh, he's he's done many things. He's worked in the movie business, television business, and he's been a teacher at times. And currently, he's the uh, the the co-founder and CEO of Velo Bar CBD, a, a cherished sponsor of the show. Never so, heard of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a plant-based CBD bar, man. We'll get into all that, but uh, without without further ado, Mr. Brant Ryder, welcome, Brant. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. How's everybody doing tonight? What's good, going man. on? Dude? What's going on, dude? <laughs> <laughs> so Brant, yeah, shades of high school. So. We've been we re, we we reconnected a few years back. I saw you in New York a couple of years ago, and you told me about what's been going on in your life. But let's start from the beginning because you've you've had a crazy life in many ways. I yeah. mean, you okay? Let let me start because I know uh, what Renee got was your time in L.A. and stuff. But you you lived in uh. Like in Long Island, New York, you were born in Long Island or something, or what part uh, of New York? So yeah, so uh, uh, Mount. Uh, okay, so I, when I was very little, I lived in a small uh, a town in upstate New York called upstate. Uh, yeah Mayapack, um, which is at the time it was a very kind of Republican you know county, and uh, and and my parents really really hated it there, especially my mom because she was a you know, died in the wool lefty from back in the day, red diaper baby. Her, her, her dad actually tried to organize models back in the fifties. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, um, my parents just decided they, they'd had enough of, uh, of suburbia and, uh, your dad, your dad, your dad, if I'm not mistaken, was, he had a, a thriving dental practice. Yeah. Didn't he? Yeah. And, and, and he he just sold it, and he said, "Kids, get in the car. We're leaving." Right? Well, it was actually it was more my mom. I think my mom basically told him, um, "I'm leaving, and I'm taking the kids. You can come too if you want." Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he, he had enough nice of, of that, but you know, it was like it was the late '60s, early '70s, and and both my parents were pretty radicalized at that point. Um, 
there was uh, there was a commune of people actually in that town in Mayapak. Um, some hippies uh, were living in a commune that was actually started by a, a, a Stuyvesant uh, descendant. Um, and and you know, my dad was a dentist, and he was kind of you know trading dental work for art, you know, that some of the hippies were painting, and and they had become pretty radicalized by the early seventies, and then when McGovern you know, lost in 72 in this crushing landslide to Nixon. My mom just said, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> um, he, he lost his own state. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. No, no, no. I think he, that would the only states he cared, I think, was his home oh. state of Minnesota and the district. Minnesota. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, um, but yeah, so um, my, my, my parents decided they wanted to start a commune. So um, we traveled around the country, um, visiting different communes all throughout the country. And then, um, uh, there was this big gathering uh, that that summer in 1972 in this on top of this mountain in Colorado, and my parents and and you know I'm just you know a very small kid at the time, but we climbed to the top of this mountain. My parents did acid, and you know they they had a, a pretty transformative experience, and um, decided that uh, you know when they came down from the mountain that they were going to look for some land to buy a commune and start a commune of our own. So that's what they did. Wow. And your dad's name is Jim Jones, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I was gonna say is, it, is it one of those like uh, the Qureshis or, or, uh, or the People's Temple? Is like that, that sort well, of? That's, or? that's really kind of a funny thing about it because certainly that kind of, you know, Eastern cult thing was part of the whole commune trip. I mean, we lived on the commune. Basically, the, what, the idea you guys settled in West Virginia, right? Yeah, West Virginia. So, yeah. So we ended up okay. when we, you know, I'm I'm seven years old at the time. So yeah, I, yeah, I know. I had, <laughs> you know, input in the decision, but my parents bought some land in West Virginia because um, at the time there was something. I think it was called the National Health Service or something. But there was like a domestic peace corps that placed doctors and dentists in high need areas throughout the country. And my dad was a dentist and. He was offered either downtown Philadelphia or rural West Virginia. And so naturally they picked rural West Virginia because they were wanted to do it back to the land, you know, agrarian commune. Hmm. So a bunch of the people that we met at that gathering, which by the way, that that gathering in Colorado, it it, it later turned into what is now called the Rainbow Gathering. That was like the very first Rainbow Gathering. I don't know if your hmm. listeners are familiar with that, but but yeah, so some people that we met at that at that gathering and other people we just met hitchhiking or whatever along along the way. Um, my parents started this commune, and we lived there for about five years. And and certainly, you know, a big part of it was was farming and organic farming, um, but also a big part of it was you know uh, free love and partner swapping and drugs and and uh, but also like Eastern religion. And you know, at the at the time there was uh, like this Guru Maharaji cult and these other like kind of uh, yeah you know, ashrams. And so that, that all, it was all kind of wound up. I mean, we never got as extreme as, you know, David Koresh or any, you know, Kool-Aid drinking or anything like that. But, you oh, know, thank was, God. It, it now, what did you think? What did you think about that? Brandt well, as, a, no, as a child, funny. seven, eight, yeah. nine? Yeah. You know, because coming from suburban New York, I was like, this is terrible. You know, I want to <laughs> <laughs> I hated it at first. Um, and having to work out in the garden. But, you know, after about a couple of years, it really started, I really started to love it because, you know. Because you were brainwashed? No. Yeah, yeah, Stockholm Syndrome, they call it. No, just because I really liked growing food. I really liked, you know, 
being at, you know, making food with my own hands and growing it, harvesting it and eating it. Right. You know, and, and also just, I like getting up in the morning and, you know, looking out over hundreds of acres saying this, this is mine. I live here. This is my farm. And, you know, just feeling like I could, um, you know, kind of just make things with my own hands. And so actually I really, really ended up liking it. Plus it was great because the kids were given the same degree of autonomy and we could, you know, speak out at our, you know, weekly kind of like, we call them lemon squeezes. Like, you know, you'd go around and everyone would cap on everybody else talking to them about all their shit that they were pulling. And, and as kids, we were allowed to talk to grownups as their peers, which was mm-hmm. great. <laughs> which was great. You know, so I, re- I really like that, you know, just telling people where to get off. Probably why but they weren't getting you. They weren't getting you guys involved in the free love aspect of it. Right. That would have been really weird, dude. It would have, <laughs> but I, but it, it, but it went on in other com- communes. I'm sure, you know, that's, that's, yeah. you know, that's how it, I mean, the weirdest it ever got was like walking in on, you know, your parents' bedroom and someone else was in your mom's and dad's bed. You know, that's weird. Oh, um, my, that is weird. Yeah. 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 yeah but, um, and- and you're like seven, nine years old at the time. Seven through twelve, yeah. Okay. And you and know, you have your brother Garv with you, right? Garv, yeah, yeah, yeah. Garv is there. Yeah. How was it being an older brother, you know, and having a little guy there? Did you feel any kind of like you had to protect him at all, or it was just free and easy? Everything was cool. Um, no, I mean it was really nurturing. I mean, most of the grownups were really cool with us, and and we actually what what ended up happening is we had a bunch of, you know people you know when you look back now we're in our 50s but you know at the time the grown-ups were in their early 20s which is pretty young yeah yeah Um, they were kids themselves yeah they were kids themselves so we had this kind of like you know grown-ups quasi parents quasi peers it was just very fluid Mm -hmm. um and and just really um I don't know. It was very social, you know, and, and, uh, it was great to be, to be a kid there and, and be given all that autonomy and, and, you know, being in the kitchen and cooking and, you know, sure we had to do chores, but we're working shoulder to shoulder in the fields, you know, harvesting the strawberries and that, in the heat and the right. beans and all that stuff. You felt we're like just, you had the respect of, of the, of the adults. So you, you felt more invested in it. You weren't yeah. just a, 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 a slave or, or a, you know, you no. weren't just, uh, you know, a, a possession there. Yeah. I mean, by the time I was, you know, 10, 11 years old, I was like a member in good standing, you know, we were out right. there working just as hard as anybody else. So now what about you were being homeschooled the whole time? No, that was the funny thing. <laughs> was the funny thing. So I'm like, no, no education whatsoever. right? <laughs> no, no. I'm like this long haired fucking wild hippie kid. But every morning, you know, I walked like a mile through the woods to catch a bus. Oh, to, okay. you know, to go into the, you know, the to score. school, it's a score. Yeah. To, to <laughs> you know, and all oh, these geez. other kids are like these, you know, local West Virginia kids. And we're talking serious backwoods, West Virginia. And it's like, this right. Boy, like, tweaked out long haired hippie kid. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just really bizarre. Plus, you know, the, you know, my parents were intellectuals. And so, you know, I'm reading since I'm like three years old and uh-huh. it's just, I'm just this <laughs> odd creature. Jeez, um, man, did, were you bullied because of that or uh, uh, how yeah, did... occasionally? Yeah. Sometimes people would bully me, but it was never, it was never terrible. And uh, there were, you know, I, I had some really good friends and yeah, 
yeah, it was good. You know, actually, I, I probably had more girlfriends. I th- the boys just probably thought I was too weird, but I had some good. Well, friends fuck them girls. anyway. They're they're the worst. Uh, you know, boys. You know, yeah, they're 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 always the worst. So that was you were doing good there. Yeah. Okay, so you're on the you're on the commune, and one day your mom says we're leaving, but your dad no, doesn't, yeah, he doesn't want to leave. So yeah, halfway through, my my dad had a breakdown and um, split the commune and. Um, uh, I mean, there, there was just so much shit going on, you know, with, with the partner swapping and the drugs and just the intense kind of more than the drugs, I think was just the intense kind of psychological cauldron of everybody psychoanalyzing each other and, mm. and, um, you know, calling each other out because they didn't, you know, do enough chores or whatever. And, uh, and then the whole, the comment kind of split over who was going to follow the guru and who wasn't. And, and your father being the guru. Well, okay, so there was this Indian guru that, that oh, my father, you know, Guru Maharaji, and my father and some of the other people said, yeah, he's the way. And then the other people said, this is bullshit. This is a scam artist. So that kind of split the commune. And then my okay. dad actually did at one point think he was the guru and everyone should follow him. And it just got really weird and stupid. Um, and then your mom, your mom said, I'm out of here. She, no, he left. He split. Oh, he left. Yeah, he split. But and didn't that, he come back to the commune years later? Oh God, it was yeah, it was just it was ugly. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> okay. Well, we don't, we don't want to talk about we don't. Have to it talk was about so it. bad. It was just a bad '70s shit, man. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Ended the way you a lot of these things ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just, uh, but um, but yeah. So eventually, my mom just she we were just so isolated out there on the land, and um, you know, a lot of the other commune people just drifted away. So we found out about this other commune in Pennsylvania. And so we went there for like a few months, but as soon as we got there, that commune fell apart. And at, at this point it's like, you know, late seventies kind of the, all communes are falling apart. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like the yeah. age of Aquarius, like had its bad hangover and it was just, right. <laughs> just like, right. it just wasn't working, you know, because I think there are some, you know, a lot of sustainable communes and communities now, you know, because lessons learned but back mm-hmm. then everything was so raw you know and everyone was just trying to figure out you know new means of you know social structures and it there was there's no guidebook you know right and you know you throw you know drugs and free sex into the mix and, and just people fucking freak out man. pretty volatile uh, mix yeah it's a volatile mix yeah so that that coming fell apart our, our coming fell apart and then the next common we went to immediately fell apart and then my mom just said fuck it i'm tired of winter I'm moving to California. And okay. so, all right. <laughs> that's how we ended up in Venice. That's how, all right. So you went from one commune to fucking ghost town. <laughs> Venice, man. Yeah. 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 Which, I don't know if your mom realized what she was doing at the time, or that maybe that's all you could afford at the time. Yeah. But yeah. Venice, Venice still had remnants of, you know, the late 60s doors and all that stuff. But and it was Venice, dirty. Venice oh, at the time cool. was fucking, yeah. it was, I mean, there were, there were parts of Venice that were still dirt, like in between the two Venice boulevards. Yeah. You know, that well, was, they, used to, they used to have railroad tracks. They yeah. Used to be a, they used to be a street car, trolley yeah. car. But they got rid of the trolley car and they just left dirt there. Exactly. It was just like a lot of abandoned lots. You know, when you look at yeah. Venice now, it's like, you know, oh, fucking, fuck, man. yeah, it's high tech Shangri-La, but 
you know, the apartment you had in Venice now goes for one hundred fifty thousand right. a month. Right, right. <laughs> when, we, when we lived there, it was a piece of fucking shit. You know, everything yeah. in Venice then in the late seventies was just you know dog shit and empty lots. Yeah, yeah. So and but but you're a bright kid because you gum you go there and you go to school. How did you go to Emerson from Venice? Oh, dude, this is a crazy long. story. This is crazy. So I was I was at Mark Twain Junior High, which is a junior high in Venice, for like ten weeks, and I'm yeah sitting on the bus pulling out of school, and I'm you know it goes through a black neighborhood. I'm the only white kid on a on a bus full of black kids. And I get, I take a, a rock to the head because this Mexican gang was like in the alley. I guess someone from a black gang had beat up someone from a Mexican gang earlier in the day. The Mexicans were lying in wait in the alley and they start throwing rocks at the black bus. The one white kid on the black bus takes a rock to the head. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there and like all of a sudden, like my head starts feeling really warm and I look down and there's a pool of blood and this rock. Oh, the girl next to me starts fucking screaming. So my mom, you know, I took me out of that school and put me in the, oh, a safe school in like West LA, Emerson. Yeah. And then I yeah. get there and I'm like this dirt poor fucking kid with no clothes. Everyone around me is like in, you know, nice clothes, you know, Britannia, Britannica jeans and IZOD and Nikes and the little puka shells and the gold chains. And I'm, <laughs> right. like, I'm like natty fucking ratty clothes, long hair, dirty, you know, like I look like a feral fucking child. <laughs> it was just, it was ridiculous. Um, and you probably had to take what? How many blue buses did you have to take? Right. Yeah. Exactly. The blue bus is calling us. Um, yeah. But but yeah. So so but that's where I met Dick Rude. You know, because right. I was I was in uh, drama class ninth grade with Dick Rude, and back then Dick Rude was you know Richard Greenberg, and you know just as yeah as everybody else, and you know he his family had money. Um, you know his mom yeah. had an apartment building, and he was a popular kid, but. Uh, for some reason, I think he just decided uh, to talk to me one day, and that's when things got interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, but also, um, you're smarter than a lot of the kids, though, even the Emerson kids. Because I remember, uh, fast forward now to high school, I mean, you're like taking two classes at uni and the rest of your days at UCLA, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I I had to do that because um, <laughs> this is funny. So I was, I, it was the '80s and Reagan was in power, and um, they were gonna. I, I got some social security benefits because my dad, uh, he he was he was a, a dentist in the Air Force, so I, I got some. Okay, but I was gonna lose all those benefits if I wasn't enrolled in college by a certain date because Reagan. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so I had to graduate high school early and enroll in college just to preserve those benefits, which I could do because I was already in this program. So, blah blah blah. Oh, but you were smart though. You were so. You keep saying that. that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about that. But I, <laughs> well, you were smarter than a lot of us, man. I mean, you spoke languages and all, all different languages and stuff. I just remember that so much. It's like this kid from Ghost Town. He's going to UCLA, and I'm fucking, you know, a junior in high school at uni. Well, you, know? you had you had lived such an adult experience up till that point. It was, uh, you well, know, far more uh, mature experience than all these all of your peers. I'm sure coming from you know that that uh, commune. Yeah, and, I guess. Yeah, that. that's probably true. And also, my mom had checked out by that point, and plus, I was, you know, smoking weed since the time I was very young, and <laughs> I don't know if that helps. Or not. <laughs> Yeah, you think that made you smarter? <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so in your bio, you said Dick, Dick, Dick came up to you like, like you know, someone shot him down. So he thought, oh, here's a guy lower than me. I can, I can talk to him, right? <laughs> oh, dude, that yeah. first time, yeah, he tricked me. He fooled me, but I deserved it. He's like, oh, so you're you're a big weed smoker, huh? All right, well, come on by my place and smoke some weed. I'm like, okay, cool. So yeah. we get back to his house, and he's like, come on, I got this this bong. It was this clear glass bong. He called the Swan. He's like, dude, after you take your hit, you should drink the bong water because it really kicks in the high. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Trying to be cool. Uh, yeah, so Dick got a hell of a laugh out of that when I splurted it out all over his carpet. But but no, we, we became friends that summer. And, and that's when, I think that's when things really started to get interesting because that was like right when KRQ started you know, playing all this really cool music and we got into a lot of cool music. His older brother right. was a weed dealer and, Oh wow! Crammy boy, you mean Crammy? I, I don't know. Am I allowed to say this now? This is this isn't this is like public information. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, you know, I think the statute of limitations yeah, uh, is so well it, expired yeah, on all that. You well know. expired on that. But yeah, so he always had weed, and um, he started going to shows and like you know getting me into going to shows, and and that was right when punk rock was happening. And that's when you you and I started hanging out too because. It was such an exciting scene in LA with all yeah. these amazing bands. Well, K Rock, Rodney on the Rocks, you know, was the shit. I mean, yeah. because you started listening to his Sunday night shows and it was like, who the fuck is this band? The Minutemen? Yeah. I gotta go check this fucking band out. I yeah. gotta go check it out. I mean, you you guys snuck out a lot more than me, because I was you know, you lived in Ghost Town. Dick yeah. got his mom's car a lot, yeah. but yeah. I lived over, you know, in Palms, you yeah. know, south of south of Pico, man. Yeah. And it was hard for me to get out at times. It was yeah. very hard for me to get out. Yeah. Well, but, my mom uh, had checked out, so it was it was pretty right. And well, no, my parent my parents had not checked out at all. They were they, they, they <laughs> yeah were checked in. Yeah. Yeah, they were like uh, you know I, I'd have to put I'd pull a Ferris Bueller and put the pillows like my body <laughs> that were on the cover. <laughs> and stuff like that. Put a, a put a tape of me snoring that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> just but to get out those, but, were, yeah. those are some amazing bands though and that was such a transformative time and i'm i'm so glad i was there for that and you know dick was the impetus to get out and see bands and we were so into those bands too and and those raymond pettibone flyers you know we'd get those sure. flyers you know before the internet you you know you'd, you'd go to a gig and some chick would be handing out flyers and that's how you'd find out about the next show and and you kept those flyers i mean dick his whole bedroom yeah was Posted with yep, flyers, yep, if I remember correctly. Yep, mine too. Just, I mean, just I everywhere. I wish I'd have fucking kept them, man. They'd yeah. be a lot right now. Yeah, I'm sure they would be. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those those were good times. And then I remember the first time I uh, uh, I really got met you uh, was with Dick, and I think there was a few other people at your apartment in, in Ghost Town, and uh, it was it was crazy going nuts. And I just remember. Somebody, I think, I think Adam Mora. Remember uh -huh. Adam yeah, Mora? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was that rich kid. His, his dad's buddy Mora, Woody Allen's agent, stuff yeah, like that. Right. That that was Uni High, man. That yeah, was Uni High. Exactly. But he was a real character, Adam. And I'll never forget this. And I, I'll, I know, I remember this line to the day I die. He looks at you and he goes, "Brant." You know, he had a thick Jewish accent yeah. for a seven, for a seventeen year old kid. He, <laughs> yeah, he seemed like an old man. For <laughs> a seventeen year old from kid, the Lower East Side. Yeah, yeah. He's well, he sounded like an old man at a deli. He, had, he sounded an uh -huh. old man like a, at a deli in New York. He, but this was a seventeen year old uh, uh, Adam. He said, "Brant." 
you come into this town and nobody likes you. Nobody likes you. And you act as though you're on top of the world or something. Do me a favor. Do us all a favor and get the fuck out of town. (laughs) You remember that? I do. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... uh, I'll never forget that. And and I thought to myself, why is Adam being so hard on this kid? You know? He just like lost <laughs> you know? everybody's chops. Yeah, I know. But he I mean he grew up in fucking Coldwater Canyon and stuff like that. He he's in a ghost town in an apartment in Venice and he's and he says that to you. It's hilarious. The funniest <laughs> thing ever. Funniest thing ever. Hmm. So listen, uh Renee, are you ready to get a refill? I sure am, man. You're reading my mind. Okay. All right, so Brent, this is part of the show where we stop. Uh, Renee and I will get a, a, a refill. You can refill whatever you're drinking and uh, just come back and we'll, we'll – so it's Troubled Nation. Uh, you know what to do. Uh, go, get, yes. go get your patch and we'll be yeah. back in a minute. All right. All right. And we're back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coleman. Back with our guest, Mr. Brent Ryder. And uh, Manny, you know, we – we, we uh, as always, you know, we, uh, anyone that's looking to uh, support the Troubled Men podcast, we have the, uh, the link right there in our show notes or the uh, Facebook page. And, uh, you know, you can buy the Troubled Men a, uh, a cocktail and, uh, you know, buy yourself one while you're at it. So, Speaking uh, of cocktails, Renee, mm-hmm. did you hear Ron Jeremy got arrested for rape? I did see that, man. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he the, seemed the, like such a nice young man, too. <laughs> well, you know, he's a 67-year-old guy. He was a big star in porn. Uh, I just think at his age, the evidence won't stand up in court. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I think he's hoping for a hung jury. Okay. Hello, Bob. <laughs> right. James <laughs> of the Two Free Stooges. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Speaking of two uh, free stooges, you know, uh, Brent, you were you were mentioning uh, Dick Rude, and you know, I, I know that name from several places. One is from uh, Manny Chevrolet and and Manny's band Two Free Stooges, which he started with Dick Rude. Yep, in yeah. in the garage of the house that Dick and I had. Okay, right, and that was a house filled with rock stars at, at all the time. Yeah, I mean Xander Sloss, who was a circle jerk. Uh, Bob Forrest, Pete Weiss, Thelonious Monster, uh, fuck Dick Stenny, Weirdos, John and, Denny, the Weirdos. They were all we were all hanging out there. It was Sarah Bonita, right? Yep. Flea got married in the backyard there. Yeah, Flea got married to his first wife, Louisa, in the backyard. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, you know, typical wedding. No matter what wedding you go to, there's always either someone throwing up or a fight. at that at flea's wedding uh remember jk yeah jk jk's girlfriend could not stop puking over the wedding gifts she was puking (laughs) over the wedding (laughs) you know know and i think the wedding gifts were in your bedroom they put all the wedding gifts (laughs) in your bedroom (laughs) i still have a couple of shirts from jk that i still wear Oh really? Yeah, he- yeah. I, I I saw him uh, a couple years back. The Peppers came for Jazz Fest, and I I saw him at at Jazz Fest. Oh, very cool. He looks exactly you know, guy, the same. Exactly the same. He's yeah. gr- he's he's never had to work a day in his life. Right. Oh, and, well, there you go. Yeah, he's got low wear. Mom, yeah. 
he's, he's his mom, uh, you know, grew up in Malibu and stuff like that. Anyway, so listen, let's get back. All right, so punk rock, Dick Root introduced you to punk rock. You're still in high school. You graduate high school. Uh, what band? So, I mean, there's got to be one band. I, I talk about, you talk about all these bands, but, you know, for me, it was like, I, I love X and the Minutemen. You yeah. Know? Like, uh, these guys, yeah. they just, they flipped my world over as a young kid, you know? Yeah. yeah. As a local band, as a local band. Yeah. You know, well, you know, the first the first show I ever saw was Levi and the Rock Cats uh, okay. at, at uh, Stardust. That was Christmas Eve, 79. Um, but that was like kind of right when it was still kind of new wave, kind of transitioning into hardcore. And yeah. And then, like, um, I was hanging out with this this friend of mine at school, this gal, and she we used to get high, you know, do our homework together. And she's like, "Let's go down to the Civic and like get concerts to a show at Santa Monica Civic." I'm like, "Great!" So we go down there, and we were listening to like she had like the Cars, but she also had like the Clash, and she had this Gary Newman album we were really into. So we're gonna let's go see Gary Newman. So like we go to the Civic, and we, back then you'd like go during the day to buy tickets for a show like later, and so. The guy behind the counter sees these high school kids come up to the counter and they're like, hey, we want to get tickets for Gary Newman. He's like, kids, The Clash is going to be playing here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> You're going to want to see The Clash. And then me and, me and the gal, we kind of look at each other for a second. Gee, what should we do? Gary Newman and The Clash. Well, okay, this guy looks like he knows what he's talking about. Okay, we'll see The Clash. Best fucking decision ever. Nice. Yeah. nice. Um, so, yeah, so that was like my first concert was The Clash. But, you know, needless to say, you know, or her, she's jailbait. Her boyfriend, you know, drives to the show. We get all fucked up in the parking lot. We're drinking Jack Daniels, smoking weed. By the time I got in there, I was like, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. Uh, but it was still, it was my first concert, the Clash of the Civic. So that was pretty cool. Nice. But yeah, the, nice. Well but, done. And, and, and still, obviously, you know, one of the greatest bands ever, one of my favorite bands. But yeah, I think at the time when we started going out to shows, like just at clubs around LA, me and Dick were really into this band called the Suburban Lawns. You remember that? Yeah, one? sure. Yeah, uh-huh. And they, they had some great songs, man. Like, you remember that song she did, Janitor, but it sounded when she sang it like, Oh, my genitals, oh, my genitals. Yeah. Remember that? Yes. That was... But they, they they reminded me kind of of the Talking Heads. They were just like a geek band yeah. from, like... Didn't they go to, uh, uh, what's that, college out in Pasadena? Oh, yeah, like some art school, yeah. right? Yeah, they went to some freaky science art school and stuff yeah, like that. They were cool though, man. Like Shortcut to Nirvana, that's just a great title. I always love that song. And but and and she was like she used to like do this like stitch these invisible spider webs between the mics when she was singing. Yeah, arty I guess, but really cool. But yeah, Fear, you know, we saw Fear so many times and Dead Kennedys, you know, that was what really what where it was at, you know, that hardcore LA scene. It was fucking great. But so okay, so now let's step forward a few a little bit because I know your life, but the nation doesn't know your life. Renee is probably curious. He read sure. your novel. He read yes. your novel. Yes, I did. So. I did. I'm fascinated. <laughs> uh, but so, how do you? I mean, I'm sure you get connected to UCLA Film School by Dick, right? Dick Rude's probably. Yeah. So this this is what happens. So like Dick, you know, he had some money, so he was taking classes at Lee Strasberg. And this cat named Ramon Menendez, who was a student mm -hmm. at AFI, um, yes. American Film Institute, he was casting a student, you know, a video that he was shooting for his student film. And so he cast Dick and this other kid, this like fat kid, to play uh, his student film called Teen Angels. And, or I got to even remember, I think it was Teen Angels. Anyway, so um, Dick very kindly um, said, you know, hey, I'm going up to a rehearsal. Back then, AFI was the Greystone Manor. I'm going up for a rehearsal. Yeah. You want to come along? I'm like, great. 
So we took the bus and we're climbing up the up Doheny. It feels to me like I'm climbing up Mount Olympus to the gods of cinema. You know, <laughs> we, we get up there and um, uh, I'm just kind of sitting in the back, you know, while they're doing the rehearsal. And then, you know, it gets late and the, and the whiny kid, you know, the fat kid who's you know casting this role, you know, Ramon starts talking about, oh, we're, you know, we're going to rehearse. It's going to be late. And the kids say, oh, I don't know if I can do it. And Ramon says, well, we've got to shoot at night, too. And the kids, oh, I don't know. I got homework. So the kid goes home. And then I hang around and then we smoke a joint and um, I'm like, Ramon, I could do this part. You should cast <laughs> me. And Ramon's like, you know what? Fuck it. Okay. I'll cast you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. So that was, that was kind of how that started. So me and Dick were in that movie and then Manny, you, me and Dick, we were, we we're the cute little boys in Abby, Abby Wool's movie. Yeah, I never forget that we were the uh, uh, in the in the bathing suit contest or something was, like that. Battle of the bands, and that's where yeah, we battle of the bands, yeah. and, and we were the part of the boy bands, and me, you, and Dick were like wearing Miss America sashes or whatever, and, and little speedo bathing suits. Yeah, we oh, shot geez. that at UCLA. Like to see yeah, that. Yeah. And do you remember? Do you remember? No, I'm so glad there's no photos of that. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember? Our crack research department could come up with some. We'll have to, yeah. to scour well, the web for I'm that. Sure, I'm sure someone could find someone if they dig enough. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but Abby then, you know, she goes on to co-write Sid and Nancy. You know, she's had right. an amazing career. Nice. So many of the people from that, from that era, like Xander, case in point, you know, Xander Schloss was in Repo Man um, yeah. in, in a part that, you know, that, that, you know, when we first wrote the the one script, Leather Rubbernecks, that Dick and I and Alex wrote together, and then Alex mashed that up into Repo Man, and, and Repo Man was, you know, obviously the movie that got made, and, and just a couple of characters and ideas from Leather Rubbernecks were incorporated into hmm. into Repo Man. But one of the characters from that script was was the character of Kevin that Xander played. Um, oh, okay. right. Was that based on you, though? Probably. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if he was a geek, yeah. Uh, no, the the that the whole idea behind that's the leather rubberneck script was just kind of a con, con, critique of con, you know consumerism, and so you know the, that that character is like singing this commercial jingle and doesn't even realize the fact that he's singing it uh, because right. he's so brainwashed by consumer society. But anyway, that was a very small part well, that, of a really great movie. But that's kind of how we got to know Alex, and then you know Dick and Alex had a really fruitful you know, partnership, creative partnership that went on for years through Sid and Nancy and Straight to Hell and Walker and Xander, of course, doing the music for, you know, played guitar on the soundtrack for Walker, one of the greatest albums of all time ever. Joe, <laughs> come on. I mean, I, I still listen to that all the time. And then Xander did, you know, that incredible soundtrack for Alex's um, Highway Patrolman. Um, but there's hmm. also... Uh, 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 Abby's brother Dan, he put a lot of yeah. He was pray for rain. Yeah, pray for rain yeah. did the music uh, for Sid and Nancy. Um, also, you know, mm. keeping it all in the family. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I still think Walker is one of the most underrated albums ever. And and um, and Alex. Well, the, I think the soundtrack. I think you're right. Soundtrack's great. The movie not so good. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I saw it again a few years ago. You said I did screen, but. Alex's fifth film, Highway, um, Highway Patrolman, that I had the honor of working on as associate producer, was was a really, really good movie. It was a great movie. Um, right really glad I was able to work on that and do the soundtrack. And, and, and you wind up having a, a career in, a, as a television and film producer. Uh, yeah, you know, you, yeah. So that was kind of crazy. So like, I went to I went to college, and then I took my junior year in Japan, and then I, you know, I, I now how'd back. you go to Brown? That's that that that's a you know this the 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 commune you know dirty kid 
at at uh, at at Brown is strikes me as as interesting. Oh, I right? guess you were just so you were so well read and uh, and I don't know. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Maybe there's less there than I thought. But Buck go, go on. <laughs> Carry well, on, Brant. I think I think Brant. You know, a lot of colleges wanted him. A lot of colleges wanted him. And okay. He, he, chose, he chose Brown. That's what I remember because in your going away party, um, we all we all uh, your mom kept saying how much she loved you, yeah. and uh, we all stared at her. <laughs> no but let's go back let's let's rewind a little bit okay. okay okay so i remember like also uh during our days you know right out of high school and stuff you were still kind of living that commune life because you had a friend who was in the film industry i don't I'm not going to name his name if you want to but i remember going to your this house in venice and it'd be a, oh yeah, come come on over, Manny and Dick. Uh, we're having a backyard party, and everyone in the backyard was naked and probably oh, tripping too. Yeah, and tripping. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I always remember about you. While we were all doing bong hits, you were taking acid constantly. Acid for the children. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you were like eighteen years old, and I mean that for me that was something like you know okay we got it we got to have a special day to do it we got to ditch school or whatever and go to go to a canyon and stuff but you were just like doing it at home <laughs> you know that was your usual yeah you know you would just do it oh he's on he's on Sid. okay let's go well, we had that you know swimming pool in back and you know there was a fence around the property and then you know um i think the peppers i think uh we shot a video. Yeah. Uh, we shot uh, "Fight Like a Brave." Yeah, 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 yeah. We shot that. All right. So I just wanted to bring that up, just to tell the nation that uh, you used to. I used to talk to you while you were naked. <laughs> okay. All right, well. yeah. yeah. So you know, most of my career was pretty straight laced, and you know, suit and tie, or at least you know, jacket. Um, you know, as a, as a as a producer, and certainly, you know, when I moved to East Coast, you know, I was very buttoned down and, you know, was, was working in the entertainment industry for a long time and, and, you know, couldn't really be. You, you worked, uh, you worked for Sony Japan, right? No, for, uh, for Fuji, for Fuji television. Fuji, Fuji television. Yeah. Fuji. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time in Japan. Yeah. yeah. You're fluent in Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. You're fluent in German. No, not, not fluent in German, but certainly yes. not anymore. Not anymore. I thought you were. No, no. no. All the Axis powers, Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was I started learning one foreign language and there was only room in my brain for one foreign language at a time. So every time I learned a new Japanese word, I forgot a German word. I don't know what the hell. Okay. This is one of the funniest stories, Renee. You were hired uh, to be Arnold Schwarzenegger's interpreter <laughs> Dude. Wow. At, a, at a press conference. I, I have to bring it up because this is hilarious. <laughs> and you're at the Four Seasons in L.A. or something like that? Yeah, I think that's where it was. And the Japanese press is there, and Arnold's there, and you're there. And what happened? I didn't even want to do that gig. They asked me because my, th- my whole thing was I, I ter- interpret much better from Japanese into English because English right. is my native language. It's a lot easier mm-hmm. to interpret from a language that you know into the language that is your native language. But right. they they really wanted me to do this. They, I guess their normal interpreter fell out at the last minute, so I had to do it. 
So he walks in, Arnold Schwarzenegger walks in and he makes some, some joke. Uh, I don't even remember what it was. And the whole room full of Japanese press, they knew it was a joke. So they bust out laughing. And I like laugh too, because I thought it was funny. He looks at me and says, interpret what I said. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you here for? Aren't you the translator? Tell him what uh. I just said. And he called them a bunch of dirty Japs. Isn't no, it? no, he did not. <laughs> no, he did not do that. No, he was he was fine. But you know, I did I did do a lot. Met a lot of really interesting people. You know, interpreting. Um, yeah, it was great. At, at one point, I met like I was. Uh, I had uh, I, I was David Hockney's guide and interpreter in Japan. He won this Imperial Art Prize a few years ago, many years later than what we're talking about. And so I was kind of his guide and interpreter in Japan for you know, a couple of weeks and we're, we're bopping around Tokyo and we go into the store and it's like this little clothing boutique. And then across the room, I hear David. And then David turns around and says, Ringo. <laughs> oh, like, oh, okay. So uh, uh, we're hanging out in Tokyo with uh, David and Ringo. That's cool. So, you know, nice. you, 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 meet, you never know who you're going to meet, you know, or what happens when you're, when you're an interpreter. Yeah. Rarefied circles there. Well, so, so, you know, we, we, we want to get to the, get to the punchline here, you know, before we run out of time. Cause, uh, we do, you know, we don't have an unlimited amount of time, but so you're, you're working in the, in the, the, the television business doing all this stuff and, and kind of on, on the, on the side, you start this, uh, cannabis centric YouTube channel. Is yeah. That yeah. So now, what yeah. possessed you to do that? Just cause you're a lifelong weed smoker. And well, all right. You, By this point, all right, let's, okay. I had straightened up, okay? I was a dad. Okay. I, had, I had stopped using drugs. Literally, I had stopped using drugs because um, I was a dad. I was, you know, and I had married someone who was not into that scene at all. And I was, I was definitely playing it straight. I was going to work every day. I was definitely keeping my nose clean. Um, uh, and I was working in New York City. And I had a really good friend, still a really good friend. His name is Jason Orens, and he's a very um, he's an award winning uh, independent film producer. And I hope he listens to the show. He's an amazing guy. Um, and he and I were just kicking around some ideas one day, and you know we saw this whole cannabis thing coming. This is back in two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen. You know, right when cannabis started to be uh, legalized for recreational, and we said, you know, we got to we got to get in on this action, man. It's going to be huge. So. The, the adage in the cannabis industry that I found out later is that you do what you know. And mm -hmm. so what I did know how to do was point a camera. Um, and so I just started going around. We started this um, YouTube channel called Cannabis Frontier. And we just like went to, you know, the first, the, the cannabis cup, not the first cannabis cup, but we went to the cannabis cup in 2014 in Denver on 420, which really kind of was this huge watershed moment. Um, mm. that was the first year that, you know, legal cannabis was, was a reality. And so we just kind of pointed our camera and just let people talk and started cutting videos. And then a couple of them blew up, you know, pretty big and, and, you know, kind of went viral. And, and so that opened a lot of doors. And so for a, a good two or three years, I was going around just, you know, interviewing all these people from the cannabis industry. And I just found it really, really fascinating. And I was just really, really inspired by all these amazing entrepreneurs that, you know, basically had, had just decided, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to take the plunge and be in the cannabis business. And, um, you know, since when, when I was a television producer, a lot of the shows that I did surrounded food because the company I worked for Fuji TV, they were the company that did Iron Chef. Um, and so oh, okay. we were doing a lot of food related programming. And so, you know, I was really into food. I was making show, you know, television shows with chefs 
and, you know, really kind of inspired by that whole outlook on the world. And I was like, I want to do a cannabis edible. Um, and I want to do something healthy because, you know, my mom, you know, always since I was little, she was all about healthy food. And, you know, I grew up, you know, or, you know, again, coming full circle, you know, organic farming on the commune, you know, and understanding how important it is to have good, healthy food that's organic and sustainable. And so I just wanted to do, you know, an edible that wasn't junk food. Um, and so I just decided to start up this company. I, you know, my brother lives in Oregon and I have friends there through him and a a friend had a med card. And so at the time you could, you could, it was still medical before it transitioned to adult use. And so you could literally, um, you know, buy cannabis material at a dispensary if you had a medical card, which my friend did in your, in her kitchen, we, you know, developed the Velo bar with no licensing, nothing was necessary. And then because she was a medical patient, she could sell that product card to card from one medical Mm. patient to another. But the patient that she sold to was the dispensary. This dispensary kind of was the in-between link between one patient and another, the way that's, that's the way the, the very arcane kind of cannabis rules, you know, were. So, so I, I had this very narrow window of window of opportunity before, um, adult use uh, regulations kicked in where I could, you know, create a cannabis edible and sell it, uh, with no, not asking anyone's permission. I could just do it. Right. Right. Um, so you can't and, even do that anymore. No, 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 Everything's changing so quickly in this, this, this industry. It's, uh, it's well, the cannabis gotta industry be, is, is highly regulated. The Wild West, right? Well, at the time, yeah, because it was this transition time, you know, in like 2015, 2016, but you know, that was just enough. I just skated in under the wire. So I was able to, you know, mm. do this without any kind of, you know, formal structure. And then okay. once we had a product, um, like literally the first or second, you know, dispensary bought our product uh, was this company, Bridge City Collective in Portland. And the owner of Bridge City, David Alport, um, saw what we were doing and said, it, you know, he really dug it. And then um, he ended up becoming my partner in Velobar. And since then, um, we've built this, this company together and, and, and David, you know, with bridge city collective is now, you know, active in many, many States. He's got licenses all over the country and, you know, we're building a, uh, he, he, he is building a very, you know, impressive cannabis company, uh, a multi-state operator. And I'm, um, I'm the director of infused products for that company. So we're going to be doing wow, not only a, a THC version of, of Velobar, um, but a whole, many, many different products that are going to be infused that we're going to be rolling out, you know, over the next couple of years in different States. So it's, it's huge. It's a hugely exciting opportunity. And David's a fantastic partner. He's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. I'm just really blessed to be able to work with him. And, and it's, it's an, it's an amazing company because, you know, kind of baked into the DNA of the cannabis industry in general. And certainly Bridge City is this idea of, you know, hiring people that were, you know, victims of the drug war and, you know, giving them good paying jobs with benefits and, and yeah. kind of like, you know, being on the forefront of, of racial justice and, you know, affirmative action, affirmative hiring. And, you know, the, the cannabis industry and the CBD industry are really all about, you know, the roots of cannabis prohibition are in racism. That's why I know, have that in my notes. I was going to bring that up. It's like, that's, it's the whole reason we have the, the Hayes act and all that stuff. It's in, you know, the, 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 the Hearst newspapers. Yeah. You go ahead. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, just very quickly, just to cut to the chase, it's, it's very well documented, but uh, black musicians 
and, and Mexican musicians and white musicians were jamming together and smoking muggles is what they call it at the time. Louis right. Armstrong has a song called muggles. It's not the muggles from Harry Potter. It's marijuana. <laughs> right, and, right, right, right. and the 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 Henry Ansley who Anslinger was the uh, the at the time he was the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, which later morphed into the DEA. Um, uh, had uh, it says we can't have our white women, you know, having sex with these black musicians, you know, and and so reefer madness and this whole kind sure. of racist hysteria developed around. Uh, marijuana, and that was very convenient for William Hearst, who had magazine, who had newspapers, and had, who was vertically integrated, and he owned forests, and he wanted to put the hemp farmers out of business because he wanted all paper to come from trees, not hemp. So right. they lumped it all together. They lumped cannabis, uh, hemp, and cannabis together, demonized them both with this horrible uh, racist ideology about degenerate races, you know, and right. you know, chasing after the white women. Um, and, and then it, from there, it just developed into the war on drugs and an excuse to, you know, mass incarceration of black and brown people. Um, and this is all documented. It's not conspiracy theory. I'm not making it sure. Up. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's but, well known. But, yeah. It's, and it's a very well, you know, very well publicized quote from a former, former aide of uh, Richard Nixon who very clearly said, Yes, we 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 did this war on drugs because it was a way to you know get black people and hippies you know because right, by, by right. demonizing black people through drug use and hippies through drug use it was just another cudgel they could use to you know do all the horrible evil things they did at the time so it's it's no secret um, right. and so for me personally to be involved with the cannabis and CBD industries is part of my personal commitment to to racial justice and to try and you know I'm, I'm a hippie kid i grew up on a commune and i i really do believe in social change and i believe the cannabis industry and the cbd industries are a vehicle for positive social change and racial racial justice and affirmative action hiring so so that's kind of how it all kind of fits together now you know when you look at the timeline you guys are, are expanding i guess into every market that that well every every state allows the 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 delicious velo bar cbd bar you know that's that's you can get those everywhere mm -hmm. but as far as like these other infused products uh you know what's y'all's timeline how like how do you how long do you think it will take before louisiana has a uh, <laughs> uh, legalized recreational use like uh, sometime <laughs> next century perhaps well we're we're bullish on federal reform um we do think federal reform will happen soon right now we have to have whenever we do. Okay, so Velobar CBD can be sold everywhere in every state because mm -hmm. it's CBD, and CBD is made from hemp, and hemp is legal. It's no longer. You know, ironically, President Trump signed 2018 Farm Bill, which legalized hemp. So you can't okay. be arrested for using hemp CBD. Um, and where can you get the Velobar? Everywhere. VeloBarCBD.com right now? Yes. Go to VeloBarCBD.com right now. Yeah, I, under, I, I understand we have a, have a deal for the Troubled Nation, right? Is, is that right, Manny? Yeah. If you use the promo code TroubledMen1515, you get 15% off your order with free shipping. Yes. So, Nation, do it. But yes. yeah. we do have a new product in development. It's going to be very exciting for the nation and for everybody. Um, <laughs> it is a cannabis version of Velobar. Um, mm. I can't, can't reveal the name nice. of it yet, 
Um, no, no. But in but because it's cannabis, we cannot sell it across state lines. We can only sell it in states where we have licenses. Okay. Uh, so yeah. What so does that involve? Uh, you have to go to each individual state government and apply for licensing there. I'm sure they must all have different requirements. And uh, that's exactly it. Yeah, obtaining oh, um, marijuana licenses is an incredibly expensive, difficult, complicated process. It costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and there's no guarantee. Don't worry about it. I know a guy. <laughs> 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 Don't worry about it, Brian. I know somebody. Yeah, you know okay. a guy who knows a guy. Yeah, I know a guy. Remember Daddy Dave? Yeah. Daddy Dave, dude. Yeah. He knew a guy. He's blind now. Do you know yeah, that? Yeah, he told me. He's blind. Okay, well, uh, this is definitely uh, getting into the weeds <laughs> here, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, so so in the absence of federal reform, we, we have to manufacture the product in that state and can only sell it in that state. Marijuana okay. products, although they may be legal in that state, depending on that state's laws, cannot be transported across state lines. So every state, we can only make the cannabis version of Velobar in states where we have licenses to do so. But we're also going to be making, like I mentioned, a whole bunch of other amazing cannabis um, products that are going to be um, just really yummy and delicious and potent as hell and, and really interesting. So that's, that's a really great, nice, really, really happy to be a part of that process. Now, can I just ask you personally, uh, cause since you've been pretty open about everything. Um, uh, so Brand, are, are you into edibles personally? Like, uh, like high dose edibles? Uh, I'd love to answer that question. Um, okay. I started Villabar, uh, originally as a cannabis edible originally, like, like I said, it was for medical patients in Oregon. Um, and yeah, it happened because I was on my bike and I, uh, I used to make this like ganja butter that I would like butter my bagel with and go on a bike ride. Um, and, and I was like, man, I should be eating something healthier than just like a bagel. So, um, I said, wouldn't it be cool to have like a protein bar infused with cannabis? And so that was, that was really the inspiration for it. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I do like edibles, but I do not have a tolerance like, most of the people in our industry, um, five or 10 milligrams is plenty for me with edibles, please nation. If you're listening, start low and go slow. Yeah. A lot of people get scared off because it's, it's, it, the, you know, I know the liver metabolizes it, uh, differently than when, when you eat it as opposed to, you know, yeah, smoking and, it's, it or something. and it's a different high too. It's, it's a, it's yes. a body high. It's a, it's a full body, full mind high and it lasts a lot longer. And, um, you just have to make sure you don't eat too much. That's really it. So know your right, Cause you can't, you can't level. eat less once you've, once you've taken yep. it, it's, you just got to ride it out. That's right. <laughs> but That's but right. I, I know a lot of people here in new Orleans, uh, um, uh, who, uh, this thing called micro dosing. Yeah. 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 yeah micro. Yeah. When we, when we transitioned to rec with Velobar, that was our first Velobar after the medical time, we did a micro dose Velobar. It wasn't very popular though. I mean, I love it I, for me. Five milligrams is plenty because I can still be active. I love the, the physical sensation of, of an edible. I love the body awareness. I love to work out on it. I love to ride my bike. That's why it's Velobar. Um, you know, on, oh, on a low dose. Um, but most cannabis customers are buying for dosage. They're, they're just trying to get a bang for their buck and value for their money. So commercially, right. that was not a success. Um, okay. and, and one of the things we learned from that experience is that, you know, going into these other markets with the, the new THC Velobar, um, I can't reveal the name right now. Uh, sure. <laughs> it's going to be very close to Velobar, but not Velobar. Um, okay. Uh, 
we're going to go out with a much, much higher dosage um, because primarily it is for medical patients, you know, and, and medical patients, um, you know, if you're dealing with a severe medical condition like, you know, cancer or something like that, you are going to want 100 milligrams, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you know, 50 milligrams, um, which I couldn't possibly yeah, that would, that would freak you out. I, I just, I couldn't move. I, I mean, I, I have mistakenly <laughs> taken that much at once. And I literally could not move. It was, it was a really mean cat that sat in my groin and was scratching the inside of my thigh and I could not move the cat. I was <laughs> um, so yeah, but, but yeah, for medical patients, you know, they do require higher dosages. So yeah, so we are going to go out with a, with a higher dose product for our medical patients in those states. Because I find, you know, when I'm walking with my walker down the street, <laughs> the higher the dose is, the better for me in many ways. Yes. But if I have to go upstairs and downstairs, <laughs> the, low, the dose lower is much better for me. Yeah, I've, I've seen Manny with the stairs. It's shocking. It's, it's shocking the, 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 uh, <laughs> what, what's required to, to negotiate the stairs. But, you'd, you know, you'd, be, yeah. you'd be surprised, Brent. But, but that's also, I mean, that's one of the great things about Velobar CBD. And I feel like we've talked a lot about cannabis and not enough about CBD. CBD is really great too. And, and what ended up yes. being our most popular product in, in Oregon during when, I was, when we were doing the cannabis Velobar was the CBD Velobar made with CBD from cannabis. Because a lot of people want the, all the benefits of the plant without being high. So, um, so, and I think we've got a really great product. We, a lot of people really like the Velobar CBD product because they want to just feel relaxed or, you know, helps with pain or sleep. Oh, oh wait, we don't make health claims. Let me make that clear here. We do not make health <laughs> yes. Many uh, people have reported that it helps them with uh, a, a sense of uh, anti, you know, anti-inflammatory uh, results. Uh, we we yes. always, I mean, we always say do your own research. And the simple fact of the matter is, as I've said many times, you know, in, online and in, in person, decades of cannabis and hemp prohibition have prevented scientists and doctors from doing the research necessary mm-hmm. to tell us exactly what these plants do for us. Um, right. So we don't know and we can't know and we don't say that we know. Um, all we know is anecdotally, a lot of people have said and personal experience, I certainly find CBD calming. I really enjoy the, the sense of well-being. Sometimes I just don't want to be high. In fact, most of the time, I don't want to be high. I just want to be relaxed. And so CBD is great for that. Okay. Excellent, well, brother. Well, you're doing Excellent. God's work, Brian. I got. I must say, you know, this is a, you're helping people, uh, and you know, your those early impulses that the commune instilled in you. I, I think you're still living out in your day to day life. Yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, With, so without all the without all the the depravity. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Things have mellowed a bit. Um, well, remember what Bob in front of the pizza joint on the Venice boardwalk used to say the best damn pizza rest yeah and then he also used to scream out life's a struggle <laughs> that yes. was his best line yeah okay. he's dead now I'm sure god he's all coming be. back around <laughs> yeah. yeah well listen I think we've covered everything don't you think Renee feels like it, man. It feels like we, yeah. we've, we've really g- run the run the gamut here. And, and uh, yes, yeah, it, it, been Brent, a great guest. Uh, thank, yes. thank you so much for being on the show. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, man. Uh, Renee, I hope you stay in touch with Brent because he's, he's one of the coolest guys you ever want to know. Yeah, um, yeah we've, we've definitely have built a rapport over the, the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, we're, we're, yeah. yeah. okay. And 
anything you want to say, Brent? Anything else you want to promote? Um, I just want to say thanks to you guys for you know giving me the opportunity to just jawbone here for God knows how long. Well, um, I mean, looking at that novel you sent me, we could have talked about it a lot more. We like stories. We a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, we touched a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we, I guess, we like stories. Yeah. We like people's personal stories, particularly when they take twists and turns the way yours has, you know, that's, that's, that's yeah. the, that's, and when you introduce your next bar, we'll have you back on and we'll touch on some of those stories we couldn't touch on today. Very good. I, I guess I just want to just one more parting statement here for what it's worth. If, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we really, I really, really, and my partner, David really, really, really wants to reach out to qualified minority candidates to come join Bridge City. Um, our, our corporate culture is going to be super welcoming. We, With all the stuff that's going on right now, we really feel we're on the crest of an, a, a huge shift in our politics. Um, we really feel like we have a shot at like real social change right now and bringing racial justice and, and, and racial equity and hiring, and we really are committed to it. So, you know, we, we encourage anyone who's, you know, hearing this podcast Please reach out to us if you have a culinary background. Um, we really want to make a difference, and, and we really want to be welcoming for hiring and promotion, and, and creating you know a, a managerial class of people who are either of color or, or who are harmed in the drug war, both, and really try to make a change. So I want to leave with that thought. Right Thank on, Brad. God bless you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you heard that first, Nation. So if you know anyone. Look up Brent Ryder at Velo Bar CBD. Uh, and, uh, all of his info will be in the show notes. You know, we'll have yeah. all links right there. So, yeah, Brent, thank you, brother. Thank you, man. It's great hanging out. And uh, how's your boy doing? Oh, he's great. He's great. Good. He's he's sixteen and six four. What do you want? Wow! Wow! wow. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Growing him healthy over there. <laughs> so when does he get out? <laughs> <laughs> He's gotta do a, do a yeah. short stretch. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Renee. How do we sign off? Uh, you know, in the Trouble Nation, we like to say, uh, "Trouble never ends, but the struggle continues." <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>